Hi, you've reached the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Please leave a message. Mario, Matt Cooper here. Looking forward to the podcast with John Gibbons. I'll get a listen on Saturday. John, try not to give any of your real zingers away if you don't mind. Try and at least save the end of the world. Armageddon shite for me. I have an old slot on Thursday that needs filling. Okay. By the way, did you hear about Mario? Not good. Anyway, good luck. Mario! Michael Healy Ray! Listen to me! I enjoy your podcast tremendously on your platform, but listen to this! Do we have to listen to more of this Irish Times environmental nonsense from some communist subversive telling us we're all going to burn in hell? Why can't you just have a normal, nice interview with somebody like, I don't know, Dana Rosemary Stalin? She's a lovely girl. Thank you. Ooh, thanks, Michael. That is a good idea. I'd love to talk to Dana. Yes, I would. I must get on to Patrick and ask him about that. But um, there seems to be great anticipation building today for my special guest on this episode. John Gibbons is one of the best-known environmental journalists and commentators in this country. You may be familiar with John from his um, columns in the Irish Times, the Sunday Business Post, and indeed his weekly slot on um, The Last Word with Matt Cooper. He's extremely passionate about this subject, as you might imagine. And he's not afraid to tell it like it is and ruffle a few feathers here and there. And he does so in very plain, accessible English which isn't always the case when it comes to the topic of climate change. Look, John has been a podcast guest here with me before, but I invited him back because I had a very specific topic that I had uh, in mind lately and that I ran by John um, uh, a few weeks ago and he agreed to come on. And it's one that I've been fascinated about for years and it's the whole concept of conspiracy theories or myths stroke conspiracy theories and how um, I like to hear um, them being debunked, if you like. Um, So to present the conspiracy theory or the myth in good faith and then to ask um, somebody to show their debunking of said conspiracy theory. This is a great conversation with John. Even though it's long enough, it is actually very concise in its own way. Here are some of the highlights. Large tracts of remote areas in the South Island of New Zealand being bought by billionaires. And I'm not kidding. That's true. And in remote areas of Alaska. And they're scouring the earth to find the places where they can can bug out. Where they and their families can go and basically ride out the apocalypse. Of course, companies like uh, Exxon and BP and so on, they could have invested heavily in solar, in renewables and so on. But it was just too darned easy to stick a pipe in the ground and suck out oil and gas. I opened my newspaper today to hear that the government is now thinking of turning down temperatures in public buildings and taking other steps to reduce our energy consumption. What's it got to do with the climate crisis? Nothing. It is only to do with the possibility of brownouts and blackouts. The only time we recognise an emergency, as we did with COVID, is when it is beating the door down. More great stuff from John coming up very shortly. But you heard a mention at the end of the montage there just about how the government is planning to reduce the temperature of public buildings in an effort to save energy. That's been one of the hot topics of the week, if you forgive the pun. The many ways that each of us are going to go about reducing the amount of energy we consume. So during the week, we hit the streets and we asked people how they plan to cut energy use. And we bumped into some familiar faces along the way. Tornishta, Leo Varadkar. (laughs) 
Well, if you're one of those uh, people who, who like taking their tops off, um, like myself, um, then it might be a good idea to, to keep your top on uh, just a bit more. Um, I'll still be taking my top off, obviously, at uh, festivals and uh, at various parks uh, and releasing uh, photos which uh, look as if they've been you know, taken accidentally by, by a stranger passerby but are actually totally staged. Um, TMI? Former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. I'll be working with my good friend Sir James Dyson on a revolutionary new British invention, my friends, which captures, you know, the hot air which I have generated with all my ipso facto, chumbawamba, Toblerone word salad nonsense gibberoo and convert it into pure energy, my friend, which will sustain not only my good self, it is half of Scotland by 2028. Comedian Joanne McNally. So, how am I going to keep warm? Um, fucking riding. Yeah, riding, riding, riding. And if I'm still cold, fucking fur coat and no knickers. <laughs> Legendary dancer and star of the movie Blackbird, Michael Flatley. My grandpappy. The Tinker Flatley used to say to me, Be Jesus a Vicoline, an Irish man will never grow cold if he keeps the thatch on his roof and his flute in his hand. <laughs> okay, I think we have uh, officially reached peak Michael Flatley um, at the end of this summer. Right, time to meet environmental journalist and campaigner John Gibbons. Back to the podcast for the second time since we started the series. Now, bear in mind, that this podcast has come out just as the world has announced that summer 2022 is the hottest summer in recorded history. We accept that there are climate change believers. We also accept that there are climate change deniers. What I wanted to do was invite John on and go through the various arguments, stroke conspiracy theories, stroke myths, that climate change deniers believe. And let's see if we can take them apart one by one. Have a listen. So, John, like, I love a conspiracy theory, all right? So, we all love conspiracy theories in a way. If, if, if It's a flight of fantasy. It's a, it's a bit of an escape. And it provides an easy, um, ready-made answer for something that possibly is more complicated um, and nuanced um, than we would give it credit for. So, like, but I still love it. I love the idea of, I love getting, you know, lost down a rabbit hole. Man did not go to the moon, you know? And then you, you watch all this stuff and you're sort of going, Woo! man did not go to the moon but what I love even more than a conspiracy theory is a conspiracy theory being debunked I love watching people with uh, good evidence take apart uh, conspiracy theories so for example with the conspiracy theory about man going to the moon you can see readily available evidence and debunking each aspect of the uh, conspiracy theories um, about man going to the moon flat earthers you know I mean okay that's not a, is that a conspiracy it is a conspiracy theory um, but you will hear people go oh there's some people who believe in the flat earth you know and and of course you can equate this with climate change as well, okay? So in this episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast, I wanted you to go away before we came onto this uh, show. And I wanted you to come up and sympathetically, if you could, uh, without malice of forethought um, and in goodwill, to come up with the top, we'll call it five um, theories that go against evidence of climate change. Um, some of them, you can call them uh, conspiracy theories, if you like. Others are maybe crackpot theories. Some are more believable on the surface. 
um, but I wanted you to go through them all. So I have them here, right? And I've, I have some, taken some notes myself. Um, but there are arguments out there, John. You are an eminent climate journalist. And um, there are arguments out there um, which suggest that the climate is not changing. Some of them are conspiracy theories, as I said. Now, probably one of the most um, popular ones is, John, the climate has changed before. In fact, it's always changing. It changes in cycles, very long cycles, epochal cycles. So, for example, there was a medieval warm period, wasn't there, John? And the Thames froze over, didn't it, John? It's all about natural cycles and stuff. Discuss. Hi, Mario. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I mean, that, as you've described it there, that is certainly one of the most uh, persistent beliefs. Uh, And of course, like so many of these, there's a very strong grain of truth to it. Because yes, the climate has changed in the past. It has changed in a cyclical way. Now, the climate changes in what's uh, in response to what are called forcings. In other words, pressure from some force, whether it is a natural cycle, uh, whether it is solar activity, etc. That those subtle changes we found, say over a 12,000 year period, you, you come in and out of glacial periods because of the earth responding to what are initially subtle changes. But then those the response gets magnified. So for example, let's say you go into a cooling phase because of a, a slight shift in the earth's uh, orbit. Mm. Now, that triggers a slight cooling. Now, that cooling means, for example, that snow remains on the ground a little bit longer uh, after winter into early spring. So the following spring, a little longer. So you roll that over a number of hundreds and even thousands of years, and eventually you actually end up with a glacial advance because the cooling becomes self-perpetuating. Yes. Right? So what that tells us, Mario, is that the Earth system is, on the one hand, it's huge, but on the other hand, it is remarkably responsive to what are quite subtle shifts, right? Now, people who say to me, oh yeah, well, the climate has always changed. Yes, they're right. They think that that's good news. I would suggest, in fact, that that's really bad news because climate responds to forcings. Now, at the moment, we're putting, it's an estimated 10 times more forcing than the forcing that were, would have been applied during the last major die-off, maybe 50, 55 million years ago. So Earth systems are changing now. The chemistry of the Earth, the Earth's core temperature is changing now, Mario, faster than at any time in millions of years. Now, do we expect the climate system to change as a result of that? Absolutely. It takes time, however. There's a, it's a vast system, which means there's inertia in it. It takes time for that heat to ripple through. For example, the, the, the extreme heat events that we're experiencing now, say in the summer of uh, 2022, into the autumn of 2022. For example, on the west coast of America, we're expecting to breach 50 degrees centigrade in September. Unprecedented, never happened before. So we're seeing this, and it isn't just in one location. That's the key thing to understand about climate shift, is that it is happening at a global scale. Yes, and Pakistan has been well over 53 degrees for a long time. That's right. And you mentioned, Mario, say, for example, some of the things like the the, the medieval warm period. That is absolutely correct. But that was a regional event centred over probably Western Europe. Right. It was not mirrored in other parts of the world. It was not a global event. It was not a global event Uh at all. Now, obviously, we have excellent records, climate records uh, in Europe going back hundreds of years. But we also have what what is called a paleoclimate record. Mm. And that is the record 
stored in uh, ancient ice cores in Antarctica. And they give us a direct physical record, Mario, that stretches back 800 thousand years. We can measure CO2 concentrations on a year-by-year basis for nearly a million years. And what that tells us is we have the glacials, we have the interglacials and so on. But we know, for example, in the last 12,000 years, which is the period as we exited the last ice age, the period known as the Holocene, in that period, global average surface temperatures have stayed within a really narrow one degree band. That's Mm. on a global. That doesn't mean that individual countries didn't have heat waves, Mm. didn't have uh, cooling periods. But in this interglacial, it's been incredibly stable. Stable. Now, what's happening now is we have exited the the stable Mm. interglacial phase. Some people will argue, some scientists will argue that the Holocene is over. And we've entered a new period in in Earth history called the Anthropocene, Mm. which means that basically the era of human impacts. Mm. We're already at about plus 1.2 over pre-industrial. Now, doesn't sound like a lot, Mm. but you may have heard me use this analogy before, but think of your own core temperature, your own body's temperature is about 37 degrees. Mm -hmm. Everybody's is, if you're healthy. Mm. If that goes up one or two degrees, you're very ill. Mm. And the earth temperature is very analogous to this. Systems, when you add, quickly add temperature, rise like one, one and a half degrees, bad things happen. Systems break down, seasons go out of sync. Uh, The ecosystems unravel. This is Mm. what happens. So the short answer, of course, is yes, the climate has changed before. Absolutely. Will it change again? Yes. Is climate change our friend? No, Mm. not necessarily. Rapid climate change basically takes away from us that the conditions for life on Earth. And And of course, the life, the conditions that we're talking about today, Mario, are the conditions, if you like, for a stable human civilization, mm-hmm. which includes, for example, our ability to produce food, mm-hmm. right? To feed 8 billion humans, 70 billion farmed animals. Mm. That requires a stable climatic condition. That means temperatures that are not so high that they destroy, for example, food production, yes. or floods not so severe that they wipe out cotton crops, mm. right? Mm. So that, that, therefore, that this stable interglacial period has been the friend of humanity. It may not have been the friend of the rest of the world, given what we've done to to the rest of the world in that period. But from a human point of view, the last number of thousands of years has been a period of unprecedented human flourishing. Okay, so your your refutation of that first conspiracy theory or that first argument against evidence for climate change, that it happened before, it happens all the time, it's natural cycles. You're saying, yes, climate changes, but not on a global level in which we have been stable for about 12,000 years. And two, not at the speed that it's happening now, which is unprecedented. And you, according to you, according to all your science, would say that's pretty much irrefutable scientifically. It's, this is beyond any reasonable doubt. There simply is no discussion about this, Mario. Uh, well, sorry, there is, there is, there is, sorry, let me rephrase that. There is no good faith discussion about this. Mm. Thanks, John. Second argument. Scientists, it's 50-50. A lot of scientists disagree with you, John. You've got scientists that say climate is changing. You've even got scientists claiming that climate is changing fast. But there's plenty of scientists out there, John, who claim that that climate isn't changing, etc. You you often see this expression in inverted commas, many scientists claim. Um, Answer that one, for for starters. What is the, what is the, 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 the consensus among how much of Science And let's talk then about the dodginess, if you like, according to your theory, about what would be the other science. So, for example, so what, so what is the consensual science? Okay. 
let's start with the basics. What's really important to understand when you're looking at any area in science is who are the experts in that field. Mm. So if you're, you know, discussing engineering, well, then you talk to the top engineers, you look at the engineering journals, right? So in this case, climatology and climate science, it is a broad field, but it has uh, recognized experts, hundreds and thousands of people whose lives have been dedicated to different aspects of climate science. So they're the people that we, the public and policymakers, need to be listening to. Now, the consensus within the publishing climate scientific community, right? These are folks who work in this every day for a living. Two surveys were done on this over the last number of years, and these are, these are kind of meta-surveys. And the first one reckoned that the consensus within publishing scientists that climate change is real, it's serious, and it's human cause. They're the three important things. Was about 97%, maybe 97.5% of publishing, publishing scientists. Now, that study was redone some years later and they kind of tightened up some of the parameters and the revised estimate was just over 99% of practicing scientists accepted the following premise, climate change is real, it's serious and it's human driven. They're the three important things. Everybody knows that climate change is real, but you have to understand the three things together. So that's how strong within the scientific, sorry, within the, the, the relevant scientific community the consensus is. Where things get kind of grey and kind of foggy is when you go to the fringes. Now, I'll give you an example. Last month, there was and a... Are the fringes part of the 1% in this instance? N- yeah, sort of. Are also but they're actually, But there's a grey beyond. These are folks, most of the folks who are telling you that climate change either isn't real or isn't serious or isn't us, they tend to be folks from outside of the, of the climate science community. And I've seen that myself. I agree with you. Yeah. You'll often see... You said an engineer. Hmm. You'll often see an engineer on on programs or on radio yeah. talking about climate, or a doctor talking yeah. about climate, or a retired educationalist, or, or, or a physicist. Yeah. So, now, for, in other words, a person who is eminently educated but not in that field. That's correct. And and there's a phrase called staying in your lane, right? And it's incredibly important. So last month, a group, um, sort of a self-organized group called Clintel. Um, published this declaration that 1100s, they call themselves scientists and other professionals. Mm. They agree, they, they put out this statement saying it's not so bad, CO, CO2 is fine, etc, etc. Now, looked into that for an article I was, I was working on last month and uh, identified, I think, 15 or 17 Irish signatories on that list. Mm-hmm. Total number of climate scientists among them, zero. Mm-hmm. Again, it's, it's retired engineers, retired educationalists, people basically who, as you said, in many cases, have had esteemed uh, careers in their own field. But now, for whatever reason, I I consider some of this is kind of uh, hobbyist, kind of hobby denial, Mm -hmm. where maybe it's a chance to get together with people of a like-minded, you know, and it becomes a kind of an interest. And then I think also, let's not underestimate the power of contrarianism right? Mm-hmm. People love to be the guy who overturns that fellow on the radio and mm. says, that's all rubbish. I know better. Because uh, you, you mentioned in the intro, it gives you a very good feeling when you know better than that guy, mm. right? And it, it, there is a self-validation that goes with overturning those experts. And now, for example, I've heard people say things like, you know, oh, these climate scientists, they're always on about, you know, CO2, but, but it's really the sun, as if they, the climate scientists over the last 50 years never thought to look up in the sky and say, oh my God, I wonder what influence the sun might have on climate systems. Mm. So it requires a certain disconnection from the reality mm. of the incredible 
hard work and detailed study that has been done by scientists within the climate science community mm. to basically set it aside, Mario. And I've, I've heard it described that it isn't really that the people don't believe in science. In many cases, these are quite science literate people. What they don't like is regulation. So what you're, what you're experiencing here is what's called regulation phobia. So these are folks, many of them, as I said, retired, who basically, I suppose, partly it is, it wasn't that way in my day, mm-hmm. number one. That's part of the bias. Now, by the way, you can have people into their 90s like David Attenborough who continue to learn, mm-hmm. who are inspiring and so on. So this is in no way an ageist remark. Mm-hmm. But there's other people who in their, shall we say, when they've got a lot of spare time in their hands, basically move outside of their own field of competence and engage in what amounts to, uh, I suppose, I pick whatever phrase you like to describe it, but essentially uh, incredibly unhelpful attempts at unpicking reality. Mm. And in many cases, Mario, they use their their fame or their recognition or indeed their, their PhDs from another field to befuddle the public yeah. and the media into thinking that, oh, so-and-so, he's a professor in something. And that's so I, effective. I guess he it's knows so effective about because things. a man or a woman is watching television and this guy with a PhD, yep. he was on there and he said it. That's right. And, and it often, and you mentioned engineers and, and just in case there's any engineers listening to us on this podcast, you know, I mean, if you're an engineer, one thing, let's say a structural engineer, one thing that they're great at is understanding risk and uncertainty. If you're a structural engineer and you're designing a bridge, you do not design that bridge for a best case scenario. You don't say, well, you know, as long as these three things don't happen, the bridge should be fine. Mm. You plan it. These, these, these engineers within their own field, Mario, are intensely conservative. Mm. They follow the, the peer-reviewed science and they understand risk. But risk includes understanding things that you don't understand, such the, the proverbial unknown unknowns. Mm. Mm. Yet, take an engineer, a retired engineer, out of his own field mm. of expertise and suddenly he behaves or she, mostly he, by the way, behaves uh, basically as if all that scientific caution and prudence that they yes. that they learned through their 40 or 50 years has gone out the window and suddenly they know better than the experts. Yes. Now, it's a strange conceit because if you went up to an engineer, Mario, and said, I know more about structural engineering than you do, they would laugh at you. Yes. Yet the same folks will turn around and claim that they understand science better than the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It yes. is strange. Yes, okay. To review, 99% of published science science in this area, published goodwill science, good faith science. Yeah, I mean, mainstream Around science. 99%. In, in, the, between, in the main between journals. Between 97.5 and 99%. Yeah, yeah. And 1%. Now, what about this danger? We talked about this on the phone. The idea of go, but John, I read her thing. It was peer reviewed. Peer reviewed, John. Peer reviewed means it was read by other scientists and other scientists signed off on it and agreed. Tell me about the dangers of reading peer-reviewed or so-called peer-reviewed articles, or some of them? Yeah, some mostly peer-review. Peer-review is the best system that we have yes. because it, it allows, uh, and basically for those who are not familiar with it, uh, when somebody submits a paper to a scientific journal, that scientific journal sends that out to a panel, sends it out blind, by the way, in other words, it's not identified who wrote it, to a panel of independent uh, scientists with, with an expertise in that field. And their job essentially, Mario, is to unpick it and to see what is wrong with the paper. And to send it back, well, first of all, if it's, if it's, if it's rubbish, reject it. If, if it is okay, but has errors or uh, faults, well, then they send it back to the authors and say, here, make this better. And if it's okay, then they approve it. And, and eventually, and oftentimes it'll take maybe a year or more to go through this process. And I will say, by the way, the scientists who engage in this, they all do it for free. 
right? This is the amazing thing. That's the peer review system. However, you do get uh, sort of grey literature. And these are what are called pay-for-play journals. They're kind of journal of the such-and-such engineering, climate something. Which essentially, you know how you get a paper in that uh, journal, Mario? You pay Mm. and they publish it. Mm. So it's pay to play. Now, this has been a great way of sneaking dodgy, uh, quote, science into the grey literature. And sneaking peer review. Yeah, and, and being able to call it peer review and pushing it out to, I suppose, to maybe a media that isn't paying too much attention and to have it come out. Now, in reality, there's very little of that stuff gets gets through, quite honestly. So the, the, that's that declaration that I did, that mentioned earlier, the Clintel declaration, it doesn't even pretend to be scientific. Mm. It's just a bunch of things that we have heard and had debunked for the last 10, 20, 30, 50 years. Mm. And it's mostly people saying, trust us because you don't want this to be right. We don't want this to be right. So maybe all the scientists in the world are wrong. Now, Maybe they are, but I wouldn't bet on it. I certainly wouldn't bet my life on it. So, John, I said we do this in good faith. And climate change deniers and climate change denial is not all about just curmudgeons or, you know, begrudgery or... That's right, Mario. I mean, I think it's incredibly important to say that there's a lot at stake here. The fossil fuel industry, the the global energy industry, is the biggest industry in the history of of mankind. Mm-hmm. It has trillions of dollars on the table, including in what are called, you know, future assets. Now, all of that is at risk. If we take climate change seriously, they've got a whole bunch of, of reserves that can never be tapped. That means these companies are facing a wipeout of their share value. Now, imagine the, the richest companies in the history of the world. Do you think they're just going to lie down and have their belly rubbed about this? Absolutely not. They've been working on strategies for decades uh, to make sure that the public was left in a state of confusion and, what and bewilderment. About, and when we talk about strategies, we are talking about something that many of us don't really know about as, as, as lay people, the lobbying industry, right? And of course, how they're able to leverage gigantic PR corporations as well. Um, so lobbying and PR. And and a lot of the lobbying and PR would be familiar to you, wouldn't it, John? Yeah, absolutely. And we know this uh, going further back. We know that the, the, the tobacco industry very effectively uh, avoided regulation, even though they knew that their product was killing half of their customers. They managed to evade regulation because their key insight was to understand that the ordinary public have only a very sketchy idea about science. So they came up with a brilliant idea. And the idea is captured in this phrase called doubt is our product. Muddy the waters. Muddy the water. As long as the public is made to believe that there's a debate and that the science isn't settled, they will continue. For example, people liked smoking. And therefore, when somebody comes along and says, Mario, put away that cigarette, tis killing you. You don't really want to hear that. You want to say, well, actually, I like cigarettes, so sod off. So I come along and I, on behalf of the tobacco industry, but I'm wearing a white coat, so I seem authoritative. And I say, Mario, that's rubbish. It could be any number of things that are killing you. It mightn't be tobacco at all. Tell you what, keep on smoking. Enjoy your smoke. Enjoy your smoke. Your life is short. Ha ha. Right. And the Basic strategies, even the same companies that peddle the tobacco strategy for that kept the industry regulation free for probably 30 years, maybe 40 years beyond when they should have been regulated. That same industry took that template called the tobacco strategy and applied it to the fossil fuel industry because they figured by the early 1990s, well, first of all, 
the people who knew about climate science before most of the rest of us were actually the oil companies. Uh, for example, Exxon back in the 70s, they had a whole scientific division researching climate change because they were interested in it. Because, for example, if you want to uh, drill an oil well, how is that going to be affected by melting ice or weather? Mm. So they had a whole division of experts looking at this. They did so a whole inadvertently, bunch. they knew a lot already. They knew tons already. Shell, for example, in 1992 uh, released a video explaining global warming. And it's a sensational thing to watch. I've, I've watched it recently and it sets out the whole thing. And basically you watch the chart going all the way to 2020s where things get really, really bad. <laughs> These guys knew about it 30 years ago, but what they did was they produced this and then they suppressed it. It was a, it was a climate researcher who unearthed this 30 year old tape uh, and basically republished it, but it's all there in black and white. They understood, but they also understood that if the public became convinced of the dangers associated with, with uncontrolled burning of fossil fuels, that there would be regulations and also that we would, uh, we would move away from fossil fuels. Now, the thing is, of course, companies like uh, Exxon and BP and so on, they could have invested heavily in solar, in renewables and so on. But that, it was just too darned easy to stick a pipe in the ground and suck out oil and gas because it is the easiest way, the idiot's way of making money is just to pull uh, liquid fuels out of the ground, set fire to them and charge a fortune. So this has been a foolproof model that has allowed the industry to make to make trillions in profits. Trillions. It's the richest industry in the history of the world. And what they've done is they mounted a huge PR and publicity campaign to smear and attack climate scientists, to go after writers, to put out false information and false documentation. And a lot of this has rippled through into the, what we now call the climate denial community. People who think they're thinking independently, some of those engineer friends, what they're actually doing is rehashing oil industry PR talking points from 30 years ago. And these were worked out in smoke-filled rooms. And the purpose was to, to confuse and befuddle and to avoid regulation. And I think of all the tragedies of the last 30 or 40 years, I personally believe this will, in hindsight, be seen as the greatest tragedy of the modern age, was that this industry knew what it was doing. It knew that it, if it continued on its pathway, it was going to basically destroy the conditions for life on Earth. And they made a decision, and the decision was, the hell with it. Well, let's go for it. Somebody can clean this mess up in the future. And the folks who did that, they're some of the most evil people in human history. Okay. Be devil's advocate for a moment, John, uh, and tell me this argument from their point of view. Climate science, it's all a racket. They're all getting paid. They're all in the pay of the political elite. The new world order. John, they're taken. They're coming for you. They're coming for your rights. Before, know it, before you know it, you'll have social credits like the Chinese model. They're all going to own us, John, and they'll tell us you own nothing and you'll be happy. This is the argument, isn't it? What I want to do, elucidate this argument for me. What do the climate change den evidence deniers say this is all about? That who's getting paid, by whom, and for what end? What's the end? What is their end game of this, these bad guys? What is the end game? So I want you to be devil's advocate for a minute. Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best. Yeah, that Who's, argument. Who are the bad guys? Yeah, that argument suggests, and I've heard it put forward, that, that for example, climate scientists, they're in it for the money. They, 
if they and if they don't put forward research they that, won't be that funded. supports the hypothesis, they won't get the research funding. Now, now just, 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 yeah. but they won't get the research funded by whom? Well, it's funded. It could be funded by governments. Okay. It could be Why not? <clears throat> well, the argument goes yes. that governments are so enthralled to the to the to the idea of climate change why? being real. I have no idea. Yeah. This is baffling. So why Mario. do governments want to? In this argument, this is what I'm trying to get at. Why do governments want to be enthralled? Do they want to change the world order and change our economics completely? And this is why they want to up overturn, uh, upend the whole fossil fuels and everything to change the. This is their argument to change the the world order of of of, of the economy. Yeah, I think a lot of this, by the way, got got um, marinated. During COVID, that's right. And what I've seen coming out of COVID is a huge number of climate deniers. Once you check, say their Twitter thread, you find they're also COVID deniers. I think the idea is COVID upset a lot of people. It upset me. I'm sure it upset you. It upset a lot of people. We lost a lot of freedom. We we felt frustrated and and hidebound and so on. But we most of us clung to the idea that the government isn't doing this because they like locking us up, uh, because they want to take away our freedom. They're doing this because there's a killer virus on the loose. Can I just stop you there for a moment? Yeah. Yeah, th- that's an excellent point. So, and take me as an example. I went through COVID with the whole idea that the government is acting, um, that the government is acting benevolently. And that is the way I still see it. However, what, what, what added fuel to the fire, if you'll forgive the pun, to climate change deniers was... The science in the COVID era, if we want to know it, was frequently wrong. Yeah. Uh, and that's because the science was changing. This virus was changing. And many of them admitted it was changing. And many of them admitted the U-turns they made. And that is science. Uh, and what annoyed people was that the scientists would come out and go, the science is settled on this. And then, of course, two months later, the science wasn't settled on it. And people, of course, this was adding fuel to the fire of people go, yeah, well, now, I told you, what about climate change? You know, so. Yeah, I think you're right, Mario. And I think, and of course, what we had during the COVID period, which, by the way, I'm, I'm hoping I'm saying this in the past tense, right? But what we had during that period was science on the hoof, right? These are medical professionals trying to figure stuff out, putting out statements into the public domain, maybe with more confidence than they felt. Why did they do that? Because they were requiring people to do difficult things like lockdown, like not go to work, like not do this. So they had to deliver that message to, if you like, in, in, in ways that are probably didn't reflect a lot of the uncertainty that they felt. Now, that, of course, allowed, uh, shall we say, some people to take the idea that really it's because they were out to control us, whether it was Agenda 21 or the New World Order or the government trying to take away nice things. This idea marinated. And I do Why would the government want to take away nice things? This is, again, I, I always kind of try to get to the end game here. What do these people want? I think... Somewhere in the background, and again, it depends on how deep down the rabbit hole of conspiracies you get, it has something to do with George Soros and Bill Gates. And eating babies. And, and the pharmaceutical industry, have, have they've got the government in their pocket, and the whole thing is an invented conspiracy, and apparently it's to sell more vaccines or something. Now, I can tell you this, the global pharmaceutical industry, vaccines are a tiny, even today, are still a tiny piece of their business. Mm-hmm. So, you know, cardiology drugs are a vastly bigger area. So why aren't we having a cardiology pandemic? if we really want to make money for the pharmaceutical industry. Now, by the way, of course the pharmaceutical industry have made money. A lot of other people have made money too. That's just what happens in a situation like this. But it is difficult to say. And I do think some of this comes down to, I think, individuals feeling frustrated, going online, finding other people with kind of, in some cases, pretty crazy ideas and being able very quickly to sort of put, you know, one and one together and get 127. 
right? Mm. Where they don't kind of really understand how science works. They certainly don't understand how medical science evolves. And that is in a kind of a crab-like way, Mario, that we kind of learn something, we then some of it falls back a bit, then we take that bit and we advance a little bit more on the other side mm. and science crabs forward. Mm. It is imperfect and it makes mistakes. The difference between... Which sci- is the definition of science. Precisely. The difference between science making a mistake and Boris Johnson making a mistake is that science owns up to its mistakes yes. and it corrects them. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that scientists and doctors don't make mistakes. Yes, they do. And the problem is when they make mistakes, the deniers jump all over them mm. because, of course, they're foolish enough to admit to their mistakes. And of Mm. course, by the way, when I say foolish enough, of course, any of us, scientists, broadcasters, journalists, we all make mistakes. We rush to judgment. The key thing is, do we correct the record or do we leave the the errors out there Mm. because we're too proud Mm. or too cynical to actually correct the the record? In in deference to the scientists um, themselves during the last period, I think it's fair to say that some of them came out with an abundance of certainty for another reason as well. And that was basic safety. And, and that was that because they weren't sure what this thing was going to do, the only way to go on it was to be categorical. Yeah, I think because that's... Because if, if, if a scientist came out and went, well, the, the reality is we're not sure. People go, he just said he's not sure. Let's go out. You have to be more categorical about that to kind of keep get people on message. I think you're right. And, and I've no doubt within, within COVID aspects of it were, were oversold. Of course they were. Yeah. Does that mean that COVID was, was, wasn't real and wasn't dangerous? Absolutely not. But as you said, uh, it was a very imperfect, fast evolving situation. Uh, a lot of pressure, a lot of political pressure, you know, government meetings practically every day of the week, yeah. uh, really heavy stuff. So I think that was almost like uh, climate change redux, Mario, because it basically the type of pressures that occur within climate science, where you're trying to advance our understanding, you're making mistakes, you're correcting those mistakes, you're refining the knowledge. And what we have at this stage, I would suggest, within the, if you like, climate sciences, we've we've eliminated most of the wrong answers. Okay. And again, science is about taking all the wrong answers and removing them mm. until eventually you get left, not with perfect truth, but with the least wrong version yeah. of reality. Mm. That's the best way I can describe science. Mm. And I say this and repeat it because it's incredibly important that people understand how science works. People, there is this, almost the Einstein or the Galileo notion that science is about one guy in a lab who pulls something out of a hat and goes, Eureka, mm. and science suddenly changes from where it was yesterday. That almost never happens happens. Mm. Science is incremental and it is built on the shoulders of existing research. Mm. And of course, so much of science is about observation and measurement, Mm. at least as much as modelling. And this is another thing that often comes up in climate science, where people say, oh, it's all just models. It is mostly about thermometer measurements. And that's why we know it's so reliable. Yeah. Okay. Let's look at a couple of more of the the probably easier ones for you to answer. Um, But these are commonly ones said as well. Trump always used to say it. Hey, folks, look outside. It's cold outside. It's freezing. I've never seen it so cold. So much for global warming, folks. Yeah. What we know is that we have, I suppose, what you might call the signal and the noise. Somebody once described it. Now, we know that weather is highly variable on a regional basis, even on a local basis from day to day. Like even from the time that I left home to come into the studio today, uh, I got rained on it two or three times. But being unbelievably difficult to 
to know precisely when the rain's going to fall because there's so much uncertainty in the system. Now, so in the short term, we get massive amounts of weather variability. But climate, if you like, at the simplest way of describing climate, what is climate? Climate is weather over time, but specifically over 30-year blocks of time. So when we look at the climate system and try to figure out what's going on in it, there's no point in looking at what happened last week or the week before. Now, you can, by the way, having said that, you can take extreme weather events like a particular heat wave or a particular flooding event and you can apply... um, you can apply scientific analysis to figure out whether that event was was increased in probability or, or uh, severity by underlying climate conditions. You can certainly do that. And, and that science of what's called climate attribution, that science is coming through very strongly and, and, and very clearly, and especially in recent years. And it means, Mario, for example, that already uh, events from this summer, we've been able to assign the, the extent to which those events have been supercharged or, or, if you like, it's like kind of weather on steroids. Now, I suppose what's really important to say here is that, yes, you will continue to get cold events. Now, let me give an example. Last winter, I think it was last winter, there was a very cold snap in Chicago. I think it was Chicago, like in, in the American sort of Central American mm-hmm. states. And people over there were going, oh, look at this. This is How can this be climate change? Now, what happened then is the scientists uh, in the region put out a chart. And what they did was they mapped the cold weather uh, occurrences over the previous 60 years. And what you found is you went from, you know, 10, 20 freezing events per winter, like severe freezing events, events per winter, maybe 60 years ago. And as you track that over time, you discovered that in the last few years, you only were getting one or two. So in the 50 to 60 year period, people don't notice it, Mario, from year to year. But when you do, when you study this on a decadal and a multi-decadal basis, you can basically map the trend line. Now, and ironically, the very fact that big freezing events have become relatively rare, say in America, makes them more remarkable, more newsworthy. If you look at US uh, TV footage from the 70s, they were regularly shoveling out 10 feet of snow because that those type of extreme weather events, uh, particularly extreme cold events, were far more frequent. So we will continue to have extreme cold events, but they're vastly more f- less frequent mm. than the extreme heating events. And the reason, of course, for that is that the whole climate system has shifted. If you think of it as a, a, uh, a bell curve, right? Mm-hmm. On the right is extreme heat, on the left is extreme cold, and in the middle is the normal stuff. That bell curve has shifted from left to right. So the new normal is hotter, but the number of hot extremes has shot up, and you still get cold weather, but it's much less frequent. Right. Uh, speaking about the 1970s, it reminded me of somebody another argument I saw when I was doing my research, and it was, hey, they predicted in the 1970s, they predicted that we're heading into an ice age, not yeah. global warming. Yeah, and I've, I've seen those. Of course they did. Now, the 1970s was a long time. And in that time, uh, Time magazine, Newsweek, all these uh, magazines speculated on all kinds of stuff, mm. right? So, for example, the, the, could there be a new ice age? Now, I interviewed one of the scientists who was involved in that debate, like very centrally involved in that debate, uh, a guy called Dr. Stephen Schneider, who's since uh, passed away. And I had this conversation with him. And he said that when he published stuff on this in the mid-1970s, he said what happened was at that time, there was a huge amount of sulfate cooling from the number of 
coal-fired power stations around the world. At the time, they had no scrubbers fitted. So that meant they were, apart from CO2, they were belching out sulfates. And sulfates are uh, an aerosol, an airborne aerosol, and they were having a cooling effect on the global climate. So as Professor Schneider put it to me, he said... What we had was a battle in the climate system between we knew CO2 was heating up the system, Mm. but we also knew that sulfates were cooling the system. Mm -hmm. And we were kind of trying to figure out who was winning Mm. the race. And he said, we published this stuff in in journals. Then a journalist comes along and says, oh, there's going to be an ice age. And they stick it in the front of Time magazine. And we scientists go... That's not, not what, what we, we said. said. Yeah, yeah. But it and sells, but it sells magazines. Of course yeah. it does. Yeah, yeah. And it's a great headline, The Next Ice Age, because it's dramatic and it's memorable. So, yes, there was a debate. Now, the thing is, that debate closed. Guys like yes. Professor Schneider, having studied it, they realised that the, the, the CO2 uh, signal was overwhelming yes. the, the sulphate signal. Yes. And it is, a, as a side note to that, Mario, it is interesting to say that um, if all the coal-fired plants in China and India were tomorrow to be fitted with with, uh, sulphate scrubbers, guess what would happen? An extra 0.5 degrees of global warming. So ironically, pollution from coal-fired power stations today is artificially cooling our climate. So however bad you think it is now, it is, there's probably another half a degree baked in there because of air pollution, which oh. is a kind of crazy thought. Okay. Some climate people who used to deny have now come, they say, yes, climate change exists. Man didn't do it. Now they're even agreeing, man did do it. So climate change exists, man did do it. But, I, but then they reveal their cards and they go, but listen, it's costing us too much. We're going to bankrupt the planet. I won't be able to uh, have, you know, eat my foie gras next week. Yeah. I mean, people like Nigel Lawson, for example, um, I think the former Chancellor of the Exchequer in England has, has kind of done a bit of an about turn, kind of was a climate sceptic, now admits it, but kind of goes, it's costing too much, though. Yeah. You know, I, 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 and I suppose I might as well finish this because it's costing too much. Now, obviously, we know where this argument is going, but you kind of wonder, and, and this is where good faith comes in again, the... The Republican lobbies of this world, the, to- the fossil fuel lobbies linked to Republicans in America, because America is responsible for 25% of the carbon emissions, approximately. Um, you'd wonder, like, seriously, just try, and this isn't in your, stay in your lane, this isn't in your wheelhouse necessarily, but what about their grandchildren? From their point of view. Yeah. Like, Lindsey Graham will, will have children, grandchildren, grandnieces and all that. What can't, I, mean, I know you can't say, Mario... I can't t- tell you what's going on inside their brains. But what's... Do you have any theories about what's driving that? Go on, tell me. <laughs> in fact, there was an article about this very subject in oh, The Guardian the other day. Okay. And essentially, um, first of all... Because we've boiled it all down yeah, now. Yeah. Super rich people uh, are... A lot of them are fairly clever. Not not as clever as they think they are, but a lot of them are fairly clever. And they're, they're well aware of what's going on. They're well aware of the consequences of, of, of what they've done. Um, now... Does that mean they'll stop doing it? Hell no. It's made them too much money. And the problem with making money is that the, the making of money tends to rob people of their cognitive faculties. I think people fall in love with their own reflection. We, now, that's a slight detour into psychology. However, super rich people look at a problem like this and go, hmm, okay, the world is going to hell in a handcart. Now, Bob, Where's the best place to relocate? Uh, I'm deadly serious. Uh, There are large tracts of remote areas in 
the South Island of New Zealand being bought by billionaires. And I'm not kidding. That's true. And in remote areas of Alaska. And they're scouring the earth to find the places where where, they can can bug out. Where they and their families, they they assume, with their security details, can go and basically ride out the apocalypse. Now, to me, this sounds like the guy from uh, Dr. Strangelove, the guy with the hat who jumps on the bomb, the the Yeeha guy. But these folks have become so ensnared trapped, if you like, in, in their own process, that it, it's beyond their comprehension that maybe the best way to deal with this is to actually put out the fire rather than getting into mm. a fireproof container for themselves. Also, their ability to compartmentalize amazingly. I mean, very rich people often have the ability to shut off vast swathes of their own emotions yep. um, in pursuit of the ultimate goal, which is the you know, dinosaurial predator velociraptor focus they need. Not, nothing gets in the way. Yeah, Not and, even their children. Yeah, and, and I think um, there's another uh, kind of component to the guys bugging out in the shelters, and that is this, this thing called long-termism, which sounds very benign that you're thinking about the future, but there is a kind of an, a long-termism uh, that is... Pr- promoted by folks like Elon Musk. And what they mean by that is that, ah, you know, this earth is not for us for very long. We have to think of our future in the stars. And I'm, again, totally serious about this. I've read more of this rubbish than I care to recall about these folks and their plans for intergalactic teleportation devices. And they're heading off to the stars and they're going to leave the burned out husk of earth behind. I mean, there was a movie you might have seen a few months ago called uh, Don't Look Up, which again was a tragedy comedy. And in the very... Satire. Yeah, yeah, satire. And in the very closing sequence, the rich who had escaped the the burned out, destroyed husk of earth find themselves uh, on some distant planet and they come out of their spacecraft to be eaten by whatever the, the local raptors mm. is, which in other words, a happy ending. But this, that idea that somehow or other they're going to shake off their mortal coil and they're going to Prometheus-like break free from the, from the, the gravity of, of, of this small earth and, and head to the stars. I know it sounds like they've all been doing drugs, but that, that idea that we're uh, almost a creature of the galaxy this is part of the billionaire delusion that gets guys like Musk investing heavily in life on Mars. And as uh, I think it was Elton John said, uh, Mars ain't no place to raise a kid. <laughs> John, do you think that, I mean, I know COVID kind of got in the way in terms of it, the, 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 the science aspect and the little bit of a splashback, backlash, if you like, scientifically. But do you think the information war is... is is being won or is it steady? Is it stable, to use one of your expressions, or is it, is it getting worse, the information war? Is the, is the information getting through anywhere, do you think? Okay. I mean, if you, look at, if you look at, for example, I could argue, yes, that the information and the lobbying and the irrefutable evidence, some of which you've kind of glazed over today, but... Uh, has got through, let's say, to the to the to the president of the United States. I mean that that the recent bill that was confirmed passed by the legislature, um, you know, is a real step forward. Well, seismic step forward, the biggest step forward ever. So somebody's getting the message somewhere. Yeah, and in Ireland, the tone of the the media debate, for want of a better word, on this has changed notably in the time that I've been involved in it. And and even in the last two or three years, there's no question that I think more and more media people have woken up to the fact that this may kill their families too, 
In other words, it's not just a, another news story. It's not just, you know, uh, something that can be compartmentalised and given to the, to the environment guy. Right. So I think there is that growing awareness that and I and I, I can say this with some confidence, Mario, because I'm I'm in on a good few of these conversations where people come to me and say, oh, crap, I've just been diving into this stuff and I I just don't know what to think. I feel sick. You know, where do I go next? And I think more and more people and I'm hearing that quietly and discreetly from folks in the media uh, as individuals where they're going, oh, my God, I, I had no idea. And to me, you know, I could say, well, how could you have been so irresponsible? Well, we all, we're, we're all busy. We all find our way here at our own pace. Unfortunately, the pace is way behind the, the crisis. So you, can, you could ask me the question, you know, are we making progress? Yes. But the crisis is slipping away from our grasp. So as we move towards it, it is a vanishing point moving away from us. And this is what bugs me or bothers me or worries the hell out of me, is that, yes, our response has improved. But for example, I opened my newspaper today to hear that the government is now thinking of turning down temperatures in public buildings and taking other steps to reduce our energy consumption. What's it got to do with the climate crisis? Nothing. It is only to do with the possibility of brownouts and blackouts because of the Ukrainian war this winter. What that says to me is that climate emergency, my hat, the only time we recognise an emergency, as we did with COVID, is when it is beating the door down. We are still compartmentalising the climate emergency. We still think that somebody else is going gonna, is gonna to die from this, but not us. And as long as that continues, we will continue to have this fractured, delayed, half-assed response. And that's, I'm afraid, still where we're stuck. Now, has it gotten better, Mario, in the time that I've been at it? Absolutely. Have more people got the message? For sure. Um, Are the deniers on the back foot? Definitely. But unfortunately, in the same time period, uh, the situation has got markedly worse. And I will say this, much worse, much more quickly than even gloomy buggers like me were expecting. And on that gloomy note, we will leave it. Thanks, John, for finishing me off as usual and making me want to end the week here and forever. Oh, it's a pleasure, Mario. And what I'm going to do is at the end of the podcast, I'm going to include the links that you sent me, if you don't mind. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. The links that John sent me to um, review um, the the most commonly held arguments against climate change. Now, when I say arguments against climate change, I'm saying that kindly. I meant the myths concerning climate change denier evidence. John, thanks very much. Pleasure, Mario. And that's it. My thanks to John Gibbons. And of course, you may not agree with everything that John said or indeed anything that John said. And if so, I'd love to hear from you. You can be concise, operate in good faith, if you will. And I will read your email as I do all of the emails that come in to mariorosenstock at gmail.com. I get back to about 95% of them. But I hope you enjoyed it for what it was. Take care. Same time, same place next week.